0: I have a guy today, a fellow retiree that I really wanted you to meet after talking with a mutual friend of ours um, who said, you got to get this guy on on your show. So I bring to you today, uh, Lieutenant Special Assignment Eric Dim, recently, very recently retired from the uh, NYPD. Lieutenant, welcome to the show.
1: I'm happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me.
0: So you well, you have such a great story, a great background. You know, you're a, a kid, you know, uh, born and raised in uh, in New York. Um, but, uh, but your title, now your title at work was Lieutenant Special Assignment. But you had a really interesting uh, title as well. T- tell me what that is.
1: Well, I've actually been coined as the most complained cop for the NYPD. So now I'm owning it.
0: We're going to talk about that more because just because you're the most complained about cop in the NYPD doesn't make you a bad cop. And in fact, as as police officers know, and I used to tell my officers this, if you weren't getting some citizen complaints, um, not ethical violations, none of that. But if you weren't getting citizen complaints, uh, you probably weren't doing your job because the bad guys love to complain about us. And especially now, that's one of the ways that they think that that they can stop us from doing our jobs. We'll talk more uh, about that a little bit. But um, I want people to know, because I'm the mom of a Navy corpsman, you started your career as the United States Marine. What made you go into the Marines?
1: There was always two types of kids growing up. And there was kids, they, they looked around to see what each different branch had to offer. And they exercised different options. But then there was the other kid, and that was me. I didn't care what the options were. I just wanted to be a Marine. I don't know why. I know it was a deity for my family. It was a family of service, but I had great uncles. They served in Pearl Harbor and they were in the Navy and my father was in the army. But for some reason, I just wanted to be a Marine. That's awesome. Now,
0: how long (laughs) did you, how much time did you spend in the Marines until you went to the NYPD?
1: Sure. So initially I enlisted for a reserve contract. And that's for six years. And the reason why is because I knew I wanted to be an officer. But based on the history, and uh, I had heard the term Mustang. And that was so, I wanted to be a Mustang. It was, you take pride in that. That's the guys that go enlisted first, and then they become officers. They get more respect. So that, that's why I went to a reserve contract so they could immediately, upon completing boot camp and graduation, go right to the officer route. So I went to boot camp. I, I guess I was a glutton for punishment. Went to training, and then bam, I went to boot camp again for officers, which is Officer can School. And I actually won honor grad by the grace of God. I don't know. I I got lucky, I guess I won honor grad did well. And then I went to Iraq in January, 2000, uh, 2003. And when I came home upon return, which was close to January, 2004, I was started getting letters from the police department and I was nearing the five-year mark that the test was good for. So at that point, you know, I, I really had to make a decision. And my father at the time and myself, Uh, we we spoke and he said you had an opportunity you served your country you did all this training why don't you try the police department it's a great opportunity work for the city get a pension none of us have ever been cops we've all been military so the glory of it it really started to resonate and uh i took the opportunity january 2004 was shortly after coming home from iraq and i went right to the police academy blind because i didn't know much about law enforcement at all it was never on my radar but immediately the interest peaked and i i I got excited with it.
0: So how did you end up in a relatively short amount of time becoming a uh, Lieutenant Special Assignment?
1: Well, immediately I saw that the NYPD was full of opportunity. It's so big and it's so vast. There's so many opportunities. So I always felt to be ambitious. And one thing I learned in the Marine Corps was, and I'm sure uh, a Navy corpsman learned the same thing, is when you have your two feet in the ground, don't get uh, comfortable with that position. You always have to put push that foot forward and, and be ready for the next next position and be ambitious about it. We'd always say, if you made sergeant, start preparing for the next rank, be prepared for staff sergeant. And I saw the NYPD was full of opportunities. So I don't believe in putting eggs in one basket. So I said, I tried to uh, learn investigative route to learn things about the detective route. I was out there doing proactive police work and I wanted to put puzzles together. And then the opportunity arose quickly in my career to take the sergeant's test. And fortunately, I did well. And within five years, that's the earliest you can make sergeant, I got promoted right away.
0: When you got on the job and were working your way up through the ranks, you know, New York City um, was the safest big city in the nation. And and one of the reasons you were um, was because of the broken windows policing that Rudy Giuliani ushered in, into, in the 90s um, and, and now, you didn't grow up in the best neighborhood, um, <laughs> and uh, then you went into the Marines, then you became a cop. So you had some knowledge of how people operate in New York. You you know, I guess we would call it street smarts. So talk about broken windows policing. Combine it with your street smarts, if you will, that you had that led you to be so incredibly successful.
1: Once I joined the police department, and I understood start started to correlate. Back then, I didn't know the penal law. But I knew if someone's doing something wrong, hey, the police are probably coming. And everyone knew back then, you know, the small stuff would be addressed. And you knew that if the small stuff were going to be addressed, obviously you wouldn't be involved in something bigger. And immediately, I didn't have any knowledge about the law, but once I joined the police department, immediately I was trained in the broken windows theory. And I'm a firm believer that the broken windows theory is applicable uh, to 1950, to any era. I always talk about police evolving through different technological areas. Uh, and I believe the broken window style works through any area that we have. And the reason being, we all have children, most of us do. And we have to address issues when it comes to our kids with small stuff. If we let our kids have a messy room or they don't pay attention in school, if we don't address it, then who knows what our kids are going to do when they're, when they're not with us. Because discipline is doing the right thing when no one's looking. So I'm a firm believer that with the broken windows theory, that people will do the right thing when the police are not even there. Because if they're aware that, hey, if I'm littering, the cop may approach me. If I'm out there smoking marijuana or if I'm drinking a beer as minuscule or the minutia that it is, hey, the police officer is going to address it. And a big
0: part of that was stop and frisk. Can you explain what stop and frisk is and and why, Can you can you go further and explain why it doesn't have anything to do with your skin color?
1: Well, absolutely. It's unfortunate, but I think that uh, Ray Kelly, uh, one of our previous police commissioners, takes blame for the broken windows. Uh, I'm sorry, for stop, question, and frisk, and also correlate with the broken windows theory. But I'd like to tell the public, stop, question, and frisk has been, has been available since 1976, which was the People versus DeBoer uh, Supreme Court case. And even going Prior to that, in 1968, we had our Terry versus Ohio, which was a case that talked about someone that was wanted for burglary. And the police officer had an interaction with someone in a dark parking lot in Ohio. And the police officer saw a bulge in that waist and was able to frisk it and retrieve that firearm. So what the public needs to understand is that these cases are levels of intrusion. And that's what's symbolic, the shield that a police officer wears. I used to tell this to my people. That's what separates you from someone that is doing security. A security guard, I have all respect for them, but their job is to be a witness. Their job is to observe observe, and report. But what's so symbolic and special about a police officer's shield is that it gives you the right to be intrusive, to have encounters, conversations with people, and potentially have what's called in New York City a level three stop encounter. And what that means is at the level three, it means that we have the legitimate right to forcibly detain someone by physical means if they try to flee or by verbal commands why that detainment is the preliminary investigation to determine if this one did commit an arrest and when, and sometimes i've heard that anti crime believes that the ends justify the means and that's not the case at all we want good police work we want to stop people with legitimate reason we want to f- make sure that our assurgency there is in compliance with the Fourth Amendment. When we stop someone, we want to make sure that we have the reasonable, the reasonable suspicion that they were about to commit a crime or they did commit a crime. Why? We want to make sure that these stops are legitimate so that when we do conduct that stop and it leads to an arrest, that when that gets to court, that that case is not taint- tainted and it actually goes to prosecution. And that's how we help the public out there. Stop, question, and frisk. I, I can tell you in my experience, I've had in the past, it's been the best tool that led to the arrest for illegal firearms.
0: Now, Eric, right now, you know, there's a lot of talk about guns and gun violence in in New York City and around the country. Now, right now there, uh, for example, there are signs up in Times Square that say gun-free zone. Now, I assume that those illegal gun possessors see those signs and absolutely stop in their tracks, turn around, go home and put their gun away, right?
1: Yeah, so uh, it's actually hysterical. It makes me like I wish that Times Square was a gun-free zone, but that's uh, the farthest from the truth, especially now compared to compared to uh, Giuliani and broken windows theory type policing.
0: Right. We we really don't need more gun laws, right? We we actually need to go back to things like stop, identify, and frisk, and let cops do their job. And I know one of the things that that you um, that you talk about is, uh, and co- all cops know this, but the citizens don't know, that cops see stuff and we feel things that the ordinary public doesn't, doesn't see. This is actually something my husband and I teach in our police trainings. Um, we call it recognition prime decision-making. Um, you talk about it as well, because it's, when we see a bad guy, you know, uh, we know they're a bad guy just by very subtle changes in things like movement or facial expression or eye contact. Talk, talk about that for a minute.
1: Well, absolutely. So I would always teach my personnel. We would have discussions that over time, the observation skills that you will obtain, you will take an eighth of a second. And in that eighth of a second that you have an approach of a person of interest, a subject or occupants of a vehicle that appear to be suspicious, that immediately in that eighth of a second, so much information is going to process through your mind. And you may not recognize it at that point, exactly what is going through your head, but you will know that this is potential for danger, potential for violence, potential to make an arrest for an illegal firearm in that eighth of a second. And it used to prove true. It, it's funny, it, uh, it's not funny, but it's sad that the public talks about race because there was numerous times, especially work in the South Bronx. That we would see a vehicle occupied by several occupants or sometimes we couldn't even see the occupants because the windows are tinted so dark and it was in an area where we had shot spotted detections shootings of, of uh, an area that has a prone perpetual history for violence and in some cases we would make an approach and pull these cars over whether it was a traffic infraction or maybe the weight of the car is coming down in the back and there's reason to believe that there's weapons inside the trunk. And immediately I remember getting to the window of some of these cars and the window would come down and just the facial expression of that occupant in an eighth of a second, I would know guys, let's go. Hey, have a nice day. And I could tell that that was a good person. Maybe it was a college kid and just a good citizen. And an eighth of a second, how do we know that? Because over time, being in police work you get these observational skills that you can't even understand and that's why I used to say the best tool that we used to have was the aftermath of an arrest so we'd sit down and we'd have a corral in the office and we would all talk about the arrest situation so it was reverse engineering we would start from the actual time the handcuffs were on and we would then go backwards to when we actually conducted a stop, so that we could find all the details that led to that arrest. And it was amazing how the details would surface. I, 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 sp- I speak about this all the time, and it's always, for me, police work, looking for those illegal firearms and behavioral indicators, it was always like looking at those pictures, and you see that blur. And then eventually that image just comes out and surfaces. That's what police work is. And, and I think it's hard for the public to understand that until you actually do it.
0: So after you make your arrest, interview your uh, suspect, you know, you've got to make your case for court, because I think a lot of people forget about this. Just because we, the police, arrest somebody doesn't mean that case is ever going to see the inside of a courtroom or even get to a prosecutor. Um, But, you know, hoping it does. You've got to prepare that case, which especially includes a police report so that three months, six months, a year, two years from now, a judge and a jury can look at that report and go, oh, I totally get what happened here. And I see why the police did what they did, right?
1: Well, there's another correlation and assimilation I would teach my personnel. And and not to sound like we don't care about our prisoners or persons of interest, because we do. But I used to teach my guys, you have to understand that we are basically almost like a FedEx operation. We're the messengers and we have a package. And when I say package, that's the person of interest. to serve That package has to be brought to court. They're the ones that are going to open that package. So you have to, sometimes it's fragile. You have to handle with care and you, that has to be properly delivered to court and where co- court is going to open that package and they're going to interpret what's inside. And, and, and I know that's kind of lame as terms, but it would really resonate in, and it would click, especially for my young police officers, that it doesn't. And basically what that means is the buck doesn't stop when the cuffs come on your purse of interest. That's where it starts. And that's why it's so important that when it comes to cases, people versus the board from 1976, that we use the levels of intrusions properly. And that when we stop someone, it's legitimate within the uh, search and seizure for the Fourth Amendment. So that when this goes to trial and we have a Wade or a map hearing, that it's not going to get uh, suppressed. We want this person to get prosecuted. That's how we help the public. Because if it's tainted, now with the police officers, including myself, our testimonies will not be credible. And that's not going to help the public in the future. And we're not going to help the public if this person is back out in the street obtaining illegal firearms and basically beating the systems.
0: Absolutely. So let's talk about because you were a guy who you know you and your people made a a, you know a lot of arrests worked a lot of cases, and here you are with that title the most complained about cop in the NYPD. And in fact, when you retired, that's what the media talked about. So talk about how that came to be, and talk about the civilian review process at NYPD.
1: Sure, absolutely. So in the first uh, in the first component of this. Immediately, when I started the police department, I had this mindset that I learned from the Marine Corps, especially Officer Cannon School. It's it's predominantly about leadership. And what I learned about leadership was that leadership is not necessarily a born attribute, but it's a learned skill. So it's a a skill I had learned in in the Marine Corps and learned over time. And they always preached to lead from the front. And I was met with resistance in the police department because they didn't want their their leaders, their supervisors, especially when I made lieutenant, because now, lieutenant, when you're not in plain clothes, you're in a white shirt, you're visible to the public, so they don't want the exposure. So it's unfortunate, but he's saying, well, let the cops go to the front and let them handle it. But I said, no. I said, what I used to say is, you don't understand the key to our success, the reason why we're getting so many firearms, and the command is getting praise from community council and the public for getting these illegal firearms, it's because I am at the front with my men and women. <laughs> we lead together. At no point did I ever say, I did this. It was always, we did it. At no point, if something went wrong, I would never sit with my guys and point blame. I would say, how do we fix this? How do we do this? And I have guys and, and, guys and girls come up with ideas. And say, what do you think? And okay, let's try that. I always wanted the people amongst me to also be leaders as, as well. But in order for that to work, they have to know that I am with them in the front. You have to lead from the front. So they know that I support them and they they would support me. So I did find in my experience that they wanted me to lead from the rear with the gear. And that did not work for me. All the books that I read, that is not applicable to that. And I don't believe we would have had the success that we did. But the byproduct of that was, obviously, I had more exposure and These thugs and gang members that I would arrest for illegal firearms, they would learn from their lawyers. Hey, you want to take down, you need to take down this unit that is targeting you. So where do you take down the body? You take it from the head. And I was the head of these units. So they were encouraged and coached to make these complaints. And eventually my name started to get out there and I was specifically targeted. And that's unfortunate because I I was, I was at the forefront with my men and women in getting these illegal firearms, particularly in PSA 7, the South Bronx, which is one of the poorest congressional districts in the entire country. And it has the highest concentration for New York City housing. So we were really trying to help these people. And now when it comes to civilian complaint, it was obvious that there was an anti-police sentiment an uh, anti-rhetoric and poor investigative skills. Because when I would go to these investigations, sometimes they held me there for three hours and four hours. And in one particular case, and this is the part I thought was ironic, you want to help the public. And there was a case where they found me guilty for pointing my firearm. And I did. I pointed my firearm at four separate persons of interest who are now under arrest. They're in federal custody for for conspiracy. They had prior shootings. And they've also been involved in uh, attempted murder case. And in regards to that, I had an informant on the day that I had the encounter where I made the arrestment. And that informant had provided specific information that they were supposed to be in possession of firearms. And during my investigation, the civilian complaint review board wanted me to disclose the identity of the informant, and I would not. And because of that, that was another additive and aggravating factor in why they substantiated my complaint. And I tried to inform that if I give you the information and the identity of this informant you're putting this person's life at risk and I would not do it I refused
0: that that's fantastic and I think that's one of the things that civilian review boards don't really understand is is what you're dealing with on on the street Eric I wish we had more time we only have about uh, thirty seconds tell so, people where they can find you because you have so many things to share with people about leadership and and uh, and I know you want to get out there and support your brothers and sisters on the NYPD as, as they move forward.
1: Where can people find you? Sure. I got the title most complaining cop. So you can find my Twitter handle most complaining cop. And also I will be doing a weekly series. Uh, and want to thank John McCarrie for inviting me. And I, we've now teamed up together on New York's, uh, finest retired and unfiltered podcast in regards to that there'll be in conjunction a weekly series it's called the 265 police live series we are the experts and weekly we will uh we will have a conversation open discussion about police events around the country that are mostly on video and uh, it's an open discussion and we just want to seek the truth
0: well i'll tell you we're going to hear for more from you in the future i have no doubt Lieutenant Eric, Jim, thanks for being with us. And if you would like more information about the National Police Association, visit us at nationalpolice.org. Sam put the gun down!
1: Do put the gun down!
0: Last year,